I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle. Our, our theme this hour is uncharted waters, okay? That, that kind of moment when you realize that you are now going without a map. You're going to have to just kind of figure things out on the fly. You don't really have a clear plan for how to proceed. There are some people, I think, who are experiencing that sensation right now, who I've been thinking of, they are about three miles from here. They are about 100 feet underground. They are the dudes in charge of the world's largest tunnel boring (laughs) machine, which has been churning away off and on for like four years now, has gone two miles almost, and is, as we record this this week, is stopped because they think it's two inches off its route, and they don't know what to do. For one thing, this is real, by the way. This was on the news. Because they're underground, they can't use GPS, so they can't figure out if they're two inches off or not. There is some special apparatus that can help them with this, but it was in Ohio and had to be driven here. It is currently being driven from Ohio to the South Lake Union neighborhood of Seattle. This project, as you know, if you are from Seattle, has had a lot of problems over the years. I feel like their first mistake was anthropomorphizing the tunnel drilling machine by naming it Bertha. Because if you just named it machine, it wouldn't seem so crazy when it broke down. That's what happens with machines. But when it's named Bertha, it feels like you have an extremely flaky friend 
who keeps breaking off plans at the last minute because their cutting blades hit a pipe underground, right? I, I have sort of like friendship on the brain right now because I'm going through a weird thing, which is that I'm actually kind of going through a friend breakup in my actual life. This is real. Um, I basically have to break up with this friend because he is the human equivalent of Bertha. <laughs> Extremely flaky, um, kind of a compulsive liar. The last straw was when some, one of my other friends saw this person at my house pouring out a big thing of really expensive alcohol I had into a water bottle and then replacing it with really cheap alcohol that he had brought in his backpack. Also, this is a 40-year-old man who wears a backpack most of the time, which should have been, should have been like giveaway number one. But the thing is, it's like, it's kind of weird having to break up with a friend. This is uncharted waters for me because they don't really make like a card for that. Like, hi, I heard you were stealing alcohol from my house and, and other things, and that's why we can't be friends anymore. Sincerely, Luke. You have to just kind of, I don't know, wing it a little bit. And I know this person is starting to figure out something is up because he's asking me, like, is everything okay? And things are not okay, but because I am from the Northwest, I would rather die than have an awkward conversation with him. <laughs> so currently, my operating plan is just to hope that he's listening to this radio show right now and is getting the hint. Uh, should we get our first guest out here and get rolling with the show? Okay. Our theme this week is uncharted waters and it really feels like we are in some uncharted waters when it comes to politics these days. But if you wanna to try to figure out how we arrived in this Bermuda Triangle, you just have to go back and read Matt Taibbi's work over the past six or so years. The unraveling of the middle class, the consolidation of power among elites, it's all covered in Taibbi's best-selling books and his Rolling Stone columns. His latest offering is a real-time account of the 2016 presidential election titled, Insane Clown President. If you're wondering where Matt stands on the whole matter, please welcome Matt Taibbi to Livewire. Uh, Matt Taibbi, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. Um, all right, I think it is still extremely surprising to a lot of us that Donald Trump was actually elected president of the United States. No applause, that's so funny, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's surprising to the media, at least a lot of media outlets. I think it's surprising to a lot of liberals in this country. What weren't we all, who are surprised by this, seeing, that you were seeing when you were out there covering the campaign trail in 2016? Well, I, would, I was surprised, too. If you read the book, early on in the book, I did think that Trump had a good chance of winning uh, up until about March of last year. And then I fell for all of the popular propaganda about the polls. And when I went to the convention, um, I ran into a Democratic Party operative at the Republican convention who sat me down and sort of uh, ran me through a list of the 19 different demographic accidents that would have to happen for Trump to win. And, and it was so convincing, I fell for it. Like everybody else in the media, I thought it was mathematically impossible for him to win. But if you didn't know about the polls and just paid attention to what was going on, 
it seemed like Trump uh, was winning by a lot because if he went at his events, they were enormously attended. There was an incredible amount of enthusiasm. And it, the, on the other side, it wasn't the same kind of thing. And they, and they, were, they were also employing a markedly different kind of strategy uh, than Trump was. Trump was using a very, uh, an interesting and effective kind of uh, intimate strategy based on a lot of personal events. So when did you get the sense? I mean, was it election night? Like a lot of oh, us, yeah. that, when that you realized, oh my, this is really happening. I, I didn't believe it until Florida happened. I, I was actually on the air when that happened. We were—I had been invited on to sort of talk about the upcoming Clinton presidency on, on a radio show, and in the middle of it, I, you know, we're watching the the results come in. I'm like, maybe we should kind of switch the topic up a little bit because it was it was pretty clear that what what was going on. And uh, yeah, no, I was shocked. I was what totally last tiny shred of credibility I had with my wife was lost that evening because I kept coming up with increasingly more impossible ways that maybe Hillary Clinton was still going to prevail. Right. right. Like, well, we haven't checked in with Western Tonga yet. Is that a thing? Are they allowed to vote there? There's still a chance. No, it was bad. Uh, we have Matt Taibbi here, a journalist and author of the new book, Insane Clown President, uh, talking about the 2016 presidential election, how things sort of came about. It's hard to not feel when you uh, look at the internet or you watch the sort of political talk shows that as an electorate, we are so far apart now as Americans. But I'm wondering, is that really the case or is it just that we only hear from the very active, very loud edges of the, the voting populace? No, I think we are really that far apart. And this is something that I, I actually wrote a book about this 10 years ago, where the theme of it was that we were a country that no longer had a commonly accepted set of facts. Uh, and this got into a lot of the, the sort of inherent problems with the commercial media, which is that we have a system of media that's designed for companies to make money by targeting a certain demographic and giving them news that they like. And so it's more like shopping than watching the news. They turn on the internet or they turn on the television to get a point of view that they agree with. And they never get the same set of facts. And that situation has worsened over the years where we're really, we can't even agree on what a fact is anymore. And I think that was a major factor in, in Trump's election. Is your sense that this is historic where we're at in terms of the enmity and things like that? Because you'll hear that, oh, back in the original days of Congress, you know, there were fist fights and people rolling around on the floor, wigs were falling off, you know, <laughs> wood teeth were shooting out of somebody's mouth. That's how I imagine Congress was in the 80s. Um, um, you've looked at this stuff pretty carefully. Are we in uncharted waters here, Matt? Yeah, Taibbi? we're definitely in uncharted waters. And, you know, I, I think politically it's very difficult to imagine a situation where that, that divide between the, the two Americas that we come together again. I, I, I can't imagine what that would possibly be. It would have to be, you know, an invasion from Mars or something like that where the country comes together. Um, after this experience with Trump, people are so embittered on both sides that it, it's going to be very difficult going forward. I think. So you come to bring a message of hope. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. great. We've got to take a very quick break. We're going to come back and talk much more with Matt Taibbi. His new book is Insane Clown President. Back with more Livewire in just a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Luke. I want to just let you know that this month we are trying to get more and more people aware of podcasting. That's right. You might think it's just a simple thing that's been around forever because you are a savvy person and you're listening to this podcast right now. But it turns out a lot of people don't know about podcasts or maybe they don't know how to get them on their phone or 
other listening device, here's where you come in. Think of a person right now who you know would like a certain podcast and then recommend it to them, either through social media or, I mean, this is crazy to even talk about, but maybe a face-to-face conversation. And then after you have let them know about the podcast you think they'd like, uh, show them how to get it on their phone. Show them how to listen to this thing. Once they learn, you know, they say, play a podcast for somebody uh, and they'll podcast for a day, but teach them how to podcast and they'll probably start their own podcast a week later. Anyway, I don't remember that phrase exactly, but the point is you can help us let even more people know about this magical thing called podcasting. And after you've hipped them to it, would you let us know the podcast you've recommended on social media by hashtagging it with hashtag tripod? Get it? T-R-Y pod? That's right. Hashtag tripod, and then we'll be able to see what you've been recommending to people. And thanks for spreading the word. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI, Public Radio International. We are coming to you from the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington. Our theme this week is Uncharted Waters, and we've got Matt Taibbi here, a journalist whose latest book is Insane Clown President, Dispatches from the 2016 Circus. Uh, You spent a considerable amount of time in Russia. I know you, you ran a newspaper there. Uh, for expats. What did your experience there looking at that government (laughs) teach you? And uh, my sense is from all the way over here that the Kremlin, they release the facts that they feel like releasing as they see them. It seems like Russia, at least from an official standpoint, has been post-factual for a while. Oh, of course. They've always been post-factual. And now we are moving into an area where it feels like the White House is often saying things that are demonstrably not true. Right. Russia's been doing this forever. They haven't been able to break out of that cycle. Once we're into that cycle in the U.S., is that something you think we can break out of? I don't know. I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's interesting when you talk to Russians about this whole issue. They think we're incredibly naive. They have no expectations that their government will tell them the truth about anything. They don't believe that their leaders won't steal from them. They just take it as a fact of life, and they kind of move on from there and try to enjoy their lives. Whereas Americans, I think, in, in a weird way, it's a burden for us, this idea that we expect our government to perform uh, and be honest and truthful and, and not to steal. And, and so this, this experience is deeply upsetting for us, uh, having to move into that other mode. Well, where do we go from here? Do we just take the Russian approach and just no. assume that all those bad things are true? No, I, I, think every, I think people are doing the right thing. They're trying to be vigilant, trying to prevent the worst from, from happening, trying to prevent an extra legal maneuver by this executive branch, pressuring their members of Congress to oppose these nominees, do all those. I mean, you have that to do that. one person is trying to do their part. Yeah, yeah, clap. Exactly. They're going to need to get some more people on board with the plan. And, and, you know, and it's really interesting. I've, I've just spent the last couple of weeks in Congress. The Democrats initially didn't, didn't plan on opposing all these Trump nominees full bore, but they were convinced by the marches, uh, by the reaction to the DeVos thing. And, and incredibly, they actually needed to see from ordinary people that they needed almost permission to behave the way they should behave. So they, they need people to get out there and do their thing. I know that you've said in interviews before that you don't think all opinions are equally valid. Um, I guess I'm wondering who gets to decide what views don't actually get equal treatment? 
I just think that you know there there is this this problem with the old school format of, of journalism. And, you know, they, we used to have this sort of fairness doctrine, whereas if you, if you presented one side of the argument, you had to give roughly equal time to the other side of the argument, and that among other things that created the this false idea that there's that all politics is binary, that there's only two sides to every issue, uh, and it re, and it also resulted in a very dull form of journalism where you know basically you would have a lead paragraph that said. There's an issue, these people think this, these people think, think that, and that's all there is. And I think most, most issues are more nuanced than that. Um, it, it isn't just left and right or black and white. I think you have to just collectively look at all the evidence and sort it out. Uh, four years from now, best case scenario, and actually let's do it in the other way, because I need some hope. <laughs> Worst case scenario in four years, Matt Taibbi, and then best case scenario. Wow. Um, the worst, I mean, I guess if we're like, you know, it's like Mad Max and we're hunting rats with sticks or something like that in four years. Uh, uh, okay, that, that's worse than I was imagining. Yeah. But, all right. And that, that would be bad. Um, no, but honestly, I was asked that question a couple of days ago, and my answer was, you know, I, I just think we got to survive to the next election. And, and, and I know that there are a lot of people in Washington who are having this idea that this is an emergency, it's like DEFCON 5 situation where the, the real key is to just to protect the rule of law, uh, worry about the policy stuff later, just make sure that we make it to the next vote. Um, that, that to me would be you know, uh, the, the happy ending. That's the happy ending. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> Matt Taibbi, Mr. Sunshine, right here on Livewire Radio. This is Livewire Radio. We've got Matt Taibbi here. Uh, Matt, your book is named Insane Clown President, which is obviously a reference to the Insane Clown Posse, which is a clown-based rap-slash-horrorcore band that I know many of you here at the Neptune Theater are fans of. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Um, but did you know, in addition to music, that Insane Clown Posse has also made a series of films? I did not know that. This is absolutely a real thing. Uh, I'm going to play you just to kind of get us all in the right frame of mind here. This is a little bit of the theme song from their epic Western film called Big Money Rustlers. This is the part of the song that we can actually play on public radio. This is a story about... <laughs> That's you it? think I did that to be funny. The next 40 words were all swears. It starts, there's three words, and then just everything else. Okay, so another unlikely person, you might say, who has also made a series of films is White House Chief Strategist Steve Bannon. This is a real thing that we did not make up. We have a lot of Bannon heads here in the crowd, huge fans of Steve Bannon. <laughs> or someone let loose a pack of Cobra. This is totally. And, and, and is it a pack? What's the collective noun for a cobra? Yeah, right. Because you're like a parliament of owls, right, you know, or, a murder yeah. of crows. Right, right. A troop of apes. What know. is it? A bright part of cobras. A bright part of cobras. <laughs> Let me know if you're interested in hosting a public radio show someday. That was much better than anything I would have come up with. 
I, I can't stress this enough. This is very real. Insane Clown Posse has made films. Also, Steve Bannon has made films. And this is what we want to do with you, Matt Taibbi. Uh, we would like to read you some actual reviews of these films. We would like you to try to guess if it is a review of a film made by Insane Clown Posse or a film made by Steve Bannon. I'm going to flunk this test. Steve Bannon, close advisor to the current president slash maybe the actual current president. Right. Okay. You want to give this a shot? Yeah, yeah, sure. These are real reviews that we got off of uh, the internet. Quote, the storyline is weak and barely exists anyway. It could be compared in its intelligence to a very poor episode of Scooby-Doo. I'm going to go with ICP in that one. That is Rotten Tomatoes reviewing Steve Bannon's 2004 film, Reagan in the Face of Evil. Wow. Okay. Um, okay, next one. Off to a hot start. Quote, this film is bereft not only of style, but reasoned opinions and even, occasionally, verifiable facts. I'm going to go with ICP again. You are absolutely right. That is, that is an IMDb review of Big Money Hustlers, which was the prequel to Big Money Rustlers, the Western. So uh, was that also a Western? I believe Hustlers was set uh, in like a modern American city. Uh -huh. And in Rustlers, it's a Western. a.k.a. Curly's Gold, the search for, they went out to the, the country. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Were this film's tone not so hysterical, it might actually be provocative from a clown. I'm going to go with Bannon. It is absolutely Rotten Tomatoes review for Bannon's film, Reagan in the Face of Evil. That's good. You're picking up on the rhythm of this game. All right, here's another one. The intense symbolism and masterful writing of the classic playwrights mixed with the stunning cinematography of the finest modern-day filmmaker. That's the review? That was a review. I'll give you this much. That is an actual review on IMDb that we found pertaining to one of these categories. I, it has to be. It, it's so stupid. It has to be Insane Clown Posse. It's absolutely Insane Clown Posse's <laughs> Big Money Rustlers. I think someone was having a little fun after some drinks right, on yeah, the IMDb exactly. film yeah. review page. And then the last one here, it's just... Are you kidding me? Uh, Bannon. Right, once again, Matt Taibbi. IMDb user reviewing Steve Bannon's 2012 film, Occupy Wall Street Unmasked. <laughs> oh, nice job. You really know your terrible movies from wherever they emanate. Matt Taibbi, everybody, right Thank here on you. Livewire. All right, I'm going to be totally honest. I did not know about this week's musical guest until maybe a month ago when my buddy Aaron was playing their record at his house. But upon hearing it, I became officially obsessed and I've spent the last month making up for lost time. And I have now probably listened to more Eboo than anyone else on the planet, including the people in Eboo. Please welcome to Livewire, Eboo.
Welcome to the show, you guys. Thanks for being here. Thank you. When did you start playing, uh, playing music in bands? Uh, I guess I, I started taking classical piano lessons when I was about three years old. Wow. And then um, my first show was at my fourth grade talent show, and we covered Green Day song. That was fun. <laughs> what Green Day song was it? It was American Idiot, actually. It had just come out. Oh, my God, I am yeah. so old. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking it'd be something off of Dookie. No. Um, moving on, uh, I, I also read that you spend a lot of time or have spent a lot of time writing music and being inspired in a park here in Seattle, Discovery Park. Absolutely. You guys know Discovery Park. For folks in other parts of the country hearing this, can you describe like what's so great about Discovery Park? Absolutely. I feel that it just has so many different aspects to it. You go and, and you can wander off in any direction. It's something different. You got the field area. Like I've made a token inspired map of, of uh, Discovery Park. There's like the like field Lord area. of the Rings Tolkien? Yes. Which is a whole other thing that I'm into, but... Wait, wait, wait. Let's cancel the music. I want to talk about this. <laughs> so, you made a Tolkien-esque map of Discovery Park. Yeah. Have you named the areas? Yes. What are some of the names? Well, for instance, uh, there's these dunes that you walk to, and uh, there's sand dunes, and they lead down to the beach. They're the golden, uh, the golden afternoon dunes, which is kind of like an Alice in Wonderland reference, because that's where I first listened to that song, All in the Golden Afternoon. So everything kind of has its own little uh, something special to it. Wow. How long did it take you to make this map? Um, actually, I still need to finish coloring it, but <laughs> so it's not done yet. <laughs> uh, that is amazing, and um, I wouldn't show that to any people on, early on in the relationship. Yeah, I know. The <laughs> word of advice from a middle-aged man. Uh, what song are we going to hear? Uh, this is a tune called When the Season Ends. All right, this is Ibu here on Livewire Radio.
you. Ebu, right here on Livewire Radio. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical unAlaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. Our theme this week is uh, uncharted waters, and so we asked the audience here at the Neptune Theater in Seattle uh, to tell us uh, something that they explored that they should have left alone. Some kind of heartbreaking answers in here, Jason. I'm not going to uh. lie to you. <laughs> Starting with Jeannie, something you explored that you should have left alone, love. Yeah, I've been there, Jeannie. Yeah. Done that. Jeannie, never ask the other person what they're thinking or feeling. I learned that years ago. They'll want to tell you the truth. You don't ever want to hear the truth. Jeannie, I'm here for you. We'll get it worked out. Uh, Deirdre said uh, something that she explored that she should have left alone. My teenage son's soccer bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used to have one of those bags. It's just best leave that alone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Jack said something that uh, he explored that should have been left alone. An upside-down beer bong at my son's 40th birthday. Parenthetically, I was 70... Exclamation point, parenthetically, all caps, first time. Wow. I'll have a party with Jack after the show. Absolutely. Our next guest is a stand up comic from right here in Seattle who's been called Fearless, a brilliant new voice that everyone should know, and also a grumpy nugget of delight. Please welcome L. Sanchez to Livewire. How's it going? <laughs> cool. So I'm a person with a lot of identities. I am a, a queer, pansexual, Latinx, mixed race, gender non-binary person. I know, right? You all just got a headache just listening to that. I know. It's hard. I have my parents. Um, they're, they're pretty liberal people. My mom is a white person. And, uh, but she's one of those white people that thought her whole life that she was like a quarter uh, American Indian. I'm t if you're one of those white people, if, don't be so confident that you get that online DNA test and expect you're gonna have a good Thanksgiving after that. Because uh, my mom got that test and found out she was 100% white. Shocking to her, not to my, the rest of my family. Um, which the best part was we gotta be like, mom, can you finally take the dream catcher out of the car? That's been so embarrassing. <laughs> for so long. But she's great. My dad is a Mexican immigrant. Um, he comes from families of uh, migrant farm workers. He was a farm worker as well. And so recently, a white friend of mine said to me, oh, do you want to go blackberry picking with me and my boyfriend? And I was like, no, I'm Mexican. I don't do that as a hobby. You know, I was very proud of myself. I was like, when, to go, when I went to go visit my parents, I was like, oh, dad, I burned Sarah so hard this week. And I told him the joke, and his reaction was like, oh, yeah, that was you out in the fields pulling hops at 16. 
that was you, I forgot. And I'm like, Jed, <laughs> this isn't about your personal struggle right now, this is about my creative process, okay? <laughs> But the thing about my parents, too, is even though they're pretty progressive liberal people, they've had a really hard time with my gender pronouns, which are they and them, which are words we already say, so everyone should just calm down. But, like, they are being real weird about it. I decided to spend uh, Christmas with them in a hotel in SeaTac. It was a bad call. Bad call because we drink a lot and don't like to leave places, so it was just not good. And so what ended up happening is we had this, they were, they were you know, gendering me incorrectly the whole time. So at some point we had a big blow up and I was like, you guys just need to accept that um, I'm not a woman. And then my mom started crying and was like, I feel like my daughter's dead. And I was like, you saw it in a movie, like calm down. My dad's reaction over this weekend is he was like, he was like, listen, First, I had to accept you were a lesbian. That was hard enough. Okay. And then he was like, and next, I had to accept that you were whatever this pan sex where you like everyone, no limits thing that you do now. Okay. It's like, and then I had to accept you're like, I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. I'm just a person or whatever that is. Okay, and then he's like, and then, and I'm like, what is, what is next? Where could you possibly go with the next? And he was like, and then I'd accept you were a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing, I haven't been a vegetarian for 10 years. And he's just still salty about it, like this much longer, later. And th that's a direct quote from my dad. I'm done, but thank you. <laughs> El Sanchez. Hi there. Hi. You were talking up there a little bit about the gender pronoun stuff. Your parents sound like they're taking it medium. Sure. What is it like to really to try to establish that as how you move through the world? And by the way, it's not your job to explain this stuff. Are you sure? I'm 100% no, sure. No, I'm excited. I'm excited. But, I'm, but I also think that there is... I think it is, it's useful, so if you feel like right. talking about it, I think it, it could inform people. Right. I, I'm not speaking for everyone because everyone has their own path, their own journey, their own reasons. I'm just talking about my own personal thing. I um, always felt uncomfortable about my gender, and I always thought that that was because um, I was trying to figure out my sexuality. So I always thought maybe I was not accepting I was a lesbian when I was saying I was bi, and I, or maybe I wanted to be more butch than I was presenting. I was very confused about it for a long time until I had dated someone who was gender non-binary and um, learned more about it. Because I'd always thought when people said that, they meant they were both male and female. But it was like, oh no, I'm neither. And I was like, you can do that? Which is a revelation for me, because I know that I was always kind of like, well, I know I'm not trans, but I know I don't, I feel so like cringe when people say ma'am or miss or use, or say, hey girl to me, which is fine, but just like stuff like that, or call me lady, like it just made me so uncomfortable. And my first name that I was born with is very feminine, and that always made me uncomfortable. I thought it was because no one could pronounce it, because my name is Alicia. Uh, with an E. But so I, when I realized that I'm like, oh, there is an option where you're neither. That was a huge thing for me. And I only started doing this like six months ago. And it was easier than I thought initially because I do have a lot of dope friends. And my parents are really cool. And they, they were tr definitely trying. And um, uh, people have been much more open to it than I thought they'd be. And once I 
came out as gender non-binary, I just feel so much more comfortable. Like everything I thought I was uncomfortable with, like my weight or like the way I dressed or any of that, it all like went away when I was like, oh, it was just this. It was just people saying like miss and ma'am to me. And so like now when people say they and their and them, it's just, I feel seen, you know? Like I feel seen for the first time and it's great. That's really awesome to hear, El. I'm, I'm very glad that you were able to get there in your journey. Thank you. And thanks for being on Livewire. Yeah, it's thanks been for cool. having me. El Sanchez, everybody. Thanks. All right. If you are going to be in the Portland, Oregon area on March 16th, Come join us at the Alberta Rose Theater for a taping of Livewire with Saturday Night Live's Sashir Zameda, comedian Alonzo Bowden, and author Ayelet Waldman. They'll all be there. More information and tickets available at livewireradio.org. This week's show is brought to you by Amtrak, offering spacious legroom with no middle seats, extra cars to walk around in, such as an observation car with panoramic windows, a full dining car, bistro cafe, free Wi-Fi, and more. With over 500 destinations, see where the train can take you. Details and reservations at Amtrak.com. This is Livewire Radio. Our theme this week is Uncharted Waters, which our next guest and her family had to cross, and I mean that literally, in order to escape South Vietnam in the 1970s. Amazingly, they made it to the U.S., but T. Bui's journey to understand her family and her role in America was really just beginning, and it wasn't until she became a parent herself years later that she began to truly understand the sacrifices that her parents had made. The result of that revelation is the beautiful and epic graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do. Please welcome T. Bui to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire. Hi, Luke. Thank you. Um, I, I was amazed to read in the foreword that you, you decided you want to tell the story of your family um, and that you thought, okay, a graphic memoir you know, with illustrations, that would be a really good way to tell this story. And then after that, you had to learn how to draw. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That is the craziest way <laughs> to make a book like this <laughs> that I have ever heard of. And I should say, it, the book is beautiful. Thank you. Thank God you actually could draw. Like, it was hidden in there somewhere. Yeah, I I mean, I could draw and I could write okay. So I figured I could maybe make a graphic novel. But it was a really, really arrogant thing to think. Um, Because comics are completely different. It's It's like making a movie. But, you know, you have to draw everything. And then, God forbid, you have to edit, which I did a lot. Your family's escape from South Vietnam is unbelievably harrowing in this book. I mean, there are parts where you're in the hold of a boat, essentially. You don't have enough water. You're hiding out down there. Um, Do you remember this stuff vividly from your childhood, or is you're pretty young? Is is this stuff that you have in the book what has been told to you by your parents and and older people who are around? Uh, Yeah, those are some of my first memories, but they're just, you know, flashbulb memories from when I was three years old, so I had to rely a lot on other people's versions of the story to fill out the, the rest of the details. Why were you fleeing, and, and why was it so uh, necessary that your family get out of South Vietnam? 
you know, it, 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 it's a buildup of a lot of years. So, I mean, nobody puts their family on a, on a, like a river boat and sets out to sea without it being a really desperate situation. And also my mother was eight and a half months pregnant at the time with my little brother. So it was not something that they decided very lightly. Um, they'd been trying to escape the country for three years and there were two or three failed attempts to escape before that. And it, it was completely illegal to do that. If you were caught, you would be thrown in jail and you know, be considered an enemy of the state. But before that even, at the end of the war, my family was on the losing side of a civil war. Um, my, both my parents were public school teachers. My dad actually worked for the Ministry of Education. So I think like, he was suspected of being some sort of spy and he was afraid of being sent away to prison labor camp. Um, and that was a very real possibility. It had already happened to several members of my family. And generally, there was just like a climate of paranoia and distrust. So you never knew who was going to turn you in. And it, it could even be for a not political reason. But somebody just said that you were saying something bad about the government. And you could be thrown in jail. And maybe your family would never see you again. But um, for my parents, who were pretty idealistic, they felt like, Maybe they could stay and help rebuild the country after the war was over, but they tried, and it, they just couldn't see any way to have a life there. Uh, we have to take a quick break, but we are going to come right back, and we're going to hear more from T. Bui. Her new book is The Best We Could Do. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. Back in a moment. Hey there, it's Luke reminding you, that the Livewire podcast only exists because of our wonderful League of Extraordinary listeners. And we want to thank some special members this week. That would be Gina Shaner of Portland, Oregon. And of course, Tyler Fox from Portland, Oregon. You're probably all thinking it's going to be Tyler Fox. That's exactly who it was. It's support from members like Gina and Tyler that keep the Livewire world turning. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you so much. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI, coming to you from the Neptune Theater in Seattle, Washington this week. We have T. Bui here. She is the author of the graphic memoir, The Best We Could Do, about her family's journey from Vietnam in the 1970s, and then also uh, her life in the US, and also just a, kind of a reflection on family and what that really means. Um, uh, when you were three years old and your family was escaping under these incredibly scary conditions, when you think about those snapshots of your memory, were you terrified as a kid? Like, what does it feel like to be a three-year-old kid in that kind of environment? Do you even grasp really what's going on? No, you don't. You're just, you know, you're, you're just barely alive and you just, you know, grab the people who are familiar to you. So you grab a lot of legs, you know, when you're that <laughs> Things high. that are at your height. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So how did it impact your parents then? Because they were obviously keenly aware of what was going on. Yes. Like how did that play out and how has that played out in their lives as Americans now? Um, I think they were really tested to their limits. You know, it's a really interesting idea. Like, what would you do if you had to throw your family on a boat? Like, how would you handle the situation? Um, so my, my mother, like a lioness, took care of the kids down below deck. Um, the one in the belly and the three outside. You know, she made sure we were all okay. And then my dad, um, not being a uh, ship captain or anything like that, he was a French and philosophy teacher, he ended up piloting the boat <laughs> because the pilot 
uh, got really scared and was um, incapacitated, and a couple of other people tried to drive the boat, and one ran it into a sandbar, and the other one turned it completely around. So my dad, who was a very smart person on the fly, learned how to navigate the boat and read the compass and like navigate by the stars, and he drove the boat all the way to Malaysia from Vietnam. Wow. So, so that, yeah, give it up for her dad, <laughs> because... Thanks, Dad. That's pretty amazing. Um, what was your life and your family's life like once you finally got to the U.S.? It was a bit easier. On the other hand, it got harder in some ways because, you know, you get, you get that adrenaline when you're in a really emergency situation and you just have to get to safety. And then, then there's the rest of life, which slows down, and then there's all your daily, daily decisions and living a regular life. And I think maybe that was really hard for them, fleeing like a really traumatic situation and then having, having to settle down in a completely foreign environment. So for my dad, there was a lot of PTSD from all the stuff that he went through since the 40s all the way through this, the Vietnam War in the 60s to the boat escape and everything. So he had a really hard time adjusting to life in the US. And then my mom was the one who went to work, even though my brother was a baby born on the way here. Yeah, life, life was hard in a different way. How did that feel for you as a kid? Did you feel uh, American and like it, you fit in and everything? Or did you have this sense that you were sort of from somewhere else? Not really. I mean, there, there was quite a bit of resentment against Vietnamese refugees at the time in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, because there were so many of us, I think. I think when we first came, we were the only Vietnamese family besides my aunt's family who sponsored us in this really small town in uh, Indiana. So we weren't a big deal and we weren't a big threat, so everyone's really nice to us. And then when we moved to San Diego, California, where there was like a lot of us, a lot of, you know, immigrants coming over on boats, we experienced the backlash. So actually most Americans back then didn't want us here and it wasn't a super friendly time. Do you feel echoes of that these days now? <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. I mean, I guess it feels like we did to some degree pull out of that, what you're describing back in the, in the 70s, and now it feels like it's going back towards that, at least for some people in this country with a very sort of closed you know, borders mentality. Do, do you fear that that's just the future of this country, or do you think that we, we have it in us as a group to, to sort of open ourselves up again to people from other places? Well, I think the first thing to do is to realize that America isn't as welcoming as our mythology would have us believe, that you know, every time there's a new wave of immigrants, there's a backlash against the immigrants and like a sort of a, a nativism that like makes us go into this us and them mentality. But the difference is in, in the 70s is that our president at the time went against public opinion and, and let in the refugees. He actually doubled the number of Vietnamese refugees let in every month. Um, and that, that, that's why I'm here. Was that Carter? That was Jimmy Carter. Because he's still alive. I mean, we, maybe we can get him back. Yeah. He only did, he like only did one term, right? I think maybe we cost him his re-election. He's still got like one more term he's allowed to do. So he could come back, yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Uh, well, this book is really beautiful and it's an amazing view into your life and your family's life. So thanks for making it, T. Bui. Thanks for having me. T. Bui, right here on Livewire Radio.
Livewire is made possible by Fully, the company that makes the standing desk, the Jarvis. Sure, standing desks used to be weird, but now they're normal. In fact, that one-size-fits-all desk that you might be using, that's what's weird. Fully also carries chairs and anti-fatigue mats and other things to keep us moving while we're at work or at home, because that's what it's really about. Not just standing, but staying in motion. Learn more about the things Fully makes and sells at fully.com slash livewire. Please welcome back to the stage, Ibu. Uh, this is a new song, it's called Malison.
is Ibu, right here on Live Wire Radio. Well, all right, everybody. Here we are at the end of the show. We'll be back next week, don't you worry. Let's tell you who helped make this whole thing happen. Big thanks to our guests, Matt Taibbi, T. Bui, L. Sanchez, and Ibu. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Amtrak, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. Caitlin Kunkel is our guest writer for this show. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Talks. Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Chris Gibbs does house sound here at the Neptune. And Jason Powers recorded our show. Thanks to Carlson Audio. Thanks also to KUOW and STG this week. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director. Special thanks to Hannah Withers. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by our members, including this week, John Zander of Olympia, Washington, and Kathleen Lane and Jelly Helm of Portland, Oregon. For more info on the show and how to listen to our podcast, head over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 